the VCs I had on my board were like, wait, what are you telling us right now? Are you telling us you're not passionate about your own product? Are you stupid? Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Associated Season 7. We're right in the middle of our docu-series on the influx of US capital into the European tech ecosystem. So far in this series, we've spoken about many things. From how the state of European tech has become unrecognizable versus 10 years ago, to how the American funds are changing the competitive texture of the ecosystem. We've established that US capital is here now, why it's coming, what it means for everyone else, and even some of the difficulties these American newcomers face hiring. But one area we haven't really explored is the logistics of this all. P.S. If you haven't yet listened to the previous episodes, you definitely should. Expanding across geographies is no mean feat. All businesses struggle with internationalization. How do you get an office, customers, staff, etc.? So we'll be asking what a US fund needs to do to successfully launch European operations. This episode has a particular focus on problems of geography. We already covered the nitty gritty of building local VC teams last time. So today we'll be looking beyond hiring at the myriad of other issues that internationalizing funds face before focusing on the strategies they are employing to get around these problems. Imagine you're a North American fund thinking of opening offices in Europe. Sequoia, Lightspeed, Bessemer, and General Catalyst did it. So Europe must be the next big thing, right? The only remaining question is, how? You start putting together the list of things you need. Office, check. Legal entity, check. This is easy. But then you start running into more substantive problems, albeit still on the administrative side. Question one springs to mind. When will we have our weekly deal calls? San Francisco is eight hours behind Europe. Another challenge is just like a logistical one, which is time zones. That's Paul Murphy, a partner at Lightspeed, one of the aforementioned US funds that has decided to plant roots on this side of the Atlantic. As the person in charge of setting up Lightspeed Europe, he's been facing some of these logistical challenges head on. We can tackle everything, but time zones... None of us want to be on calls all week at night from 6 to 10 PM. It's a pretty miserable way to live your life. So we've been working hard trying to figure out how do we tackle that because it's really easy for one call, one night call to turn into two, turn into three. And then all of a sudden you've got founders in Europe up at night and you're like, this doesn't make sense. You resolve that some people will just have to wake up early or leave work late crisis averted. But then you think a bit about the team dynamic. Your venture fund is currently like a family, a fund predicated on beautiful relationships of mentorship, training, and bonding. How will that work when everyone is separated by an ocean and pesky time zones? Investment decisions rely on trust. How do you trust each other without forming deep bonds in person? Here's James Wise, a partner at Borderton, expanding on why it's so important to get this right. Partnerships are really hard to get working well. And I've seen this on, for the last decade, venture funds collapse when the partnerships don't work out. Transitioning from one generation of partners to the next, it is really hard. And there are a handful of successes who've made generational venture capital work. Sequoia, clearly, Benchmark, I think, have done it. And I'd like to think Balderson are doing it, right? We've successfully transitioned 90% of our partnership in the last decade, but it's really hard to get. And that's because investment decision-making in such a high risk and low data 
uh, segment like venture, right? Where you're relying on your insights into founders, your insights into markets, which are very early, your insights into technology, which are often improved and right. Very few data points about product market fit, for example, are hard to generalize. That's why venture capital is an interesting asset. And so you need a group of people who are able to challenge each other because there is natural debate. This isn't a, something which an algorithm can do. And there's natural debate in every investment, um, that can have different perspectives that can be open and honest in high, um, stress and high risk environments and still maintain strong working relationships. So getting that partnership model, right. is really hard. Doing that in person is difficult. Doing that across the Atlantic in different time zones is really difficult. Okay. So you take a leaf out of Sequoia's book and have partners regularly spending extended amounts of time in the UK office with the UK team. Problem solved. You're ready for prime time. The world, or rather Europe, is your oyster. Well, not quite. The thing is, beyond these simple logistical problems, there are two deeper issues that covering Europe generates. Difficulties understanding local markets and difficulties assessing founders. We'll start with the former. Here's Anna Otterson, a founding partner at Trellis Road, a climate-focused food tech fund, explaining what American funds soon come to realize about Europe. I, I think a lot of US investors also appreciate that Europe isn't really one, one landscape even though we might want it to be. I typically find that for us, sometimes I feel we, we probably have a much, much stronger US network than we do in sort of Spain or Greece, which is probably a negative thing. But I think that's something that as soon as you start spending time on the ground in Europe, you will realize, unfortunately, that, okay, it's not that one of the Berlin investors or founders are super connected to Italian investors. It, it's very much like 10 different ecosystems in, in one way, which makes it hard for people because you don't want to open 10 offices, obviously. Anna's sentiment is shared amongst our other guests. Even European funds struggle to effectively cover the whole of Europe because it just isn't centralized. Investors need to get local understanding on several markets. Not just London, but Berlin, Stockholm, Tallinn, Paris, and Barcelona too. The list is endless. Moreover, a lack of local knowledge impairs their ability to assess deals, especially in regulated segments. James again. Secondly, I think there are levels of understanding for local markets which are required in certain segments. So I invest in health and we invest heavily in financial services, technologies, and we also invested in energy, right? In decarbonizing energy. These are regulated markets where they have really differentiated incentive structures and payment systems and agent and user challenges and directions of travel in terms of government legislation within Europe, let alone between, let's say, US markets, European markets and global markets. And having people on the ground who really understand that is hard to find. Having a depth of experience understanding those things is hard to find. So I think that's another challenge, which if you have you know, one or two partners who understand that issue and you have five or six partners who never really invest in that space, I think building cross learnings and sharing and, and basically building the trust to make an investment in those fields is really hard as well. And that's the challenge that most funds which try and split across geographies are going to have to overcome. Covering so many mini markets doesn't only create problems with deal assessment, but also limits funds' abilities to effectively support their portfolio companies. Here's Judith, a partner at La Familia, a European seed fund focused on B2B investments across the entirety of Europe, speaking about the challenges of running pan-European portfolio support. 
By pan-European, we mean covering the entirety of Europe. I definitely think it's, you know, just building out the local networks. I think U.S. funds have amazing resources. They obviously have amazing networks in the U.S. that can also be extremely beneficial for European companies. They oftentimes also already have a core network in the U.S. just based on U.S. companies also having presence here and them also potentially in the past having invested in Europe. But when it comes to like really, really, really deep local networks, I think that's just something that we'll have to build over time where European um, funds just by the fact that they're based here, very clearly have an advantage. So when it comes to sourcing the first hire, the first um, office, the first whatever it might be, like the things that startups need support with, the first contract, like getting benchmarks with regard to, is this something that's common in Germany, for example? Is this something that's common in, in France? We're investing across Europe. We have companies in France. We've got companies in the UK. We've got companies in Germany, in Spain. Things are not the same in all of those markets. Europe is not, unfortunately, in my view, one single country. It's many single countries that all have their local kind of ways of conducting business practices, legal specificities when it comes to employing people. Like there's so many nuances, even when it comes to ESOP, like the complexity is really, really big. And it's even hard for us sometimes to navigate all of them. So now coming from the US, not knowing any of that stuff, because you have a much more homogenous, I mean, they also have some kind of state differences, but you overall have a much more homogenous market. That is pretty foreign if you land here and do business. So I think that's something that we have someone in Paris, we have someone in Lisbon, we have a team in Munich, we have a team in Berlin. And so it's really important for us to have this philosophy that seed is a local game. And we need to be in the markets in which our founders are present. And we need to understand those business realities. We need to be able to support on all different things, be it legal, be it commercial, whatever it is. And that requires local networks, local expertise. And so I think that's something that structurally speaking, European funds have an advantage, especially in the early stages, but I think counts for, counts for quite a bit. And last in the list of problems created by covering 10 plus markets simultaneously are difficulty sourcing investments. Lacking local knowledge and networks, finding interesting investment opportunities becomes harder. HV is a leading European fund. They have a pan-European investment mandate but their operations are concentrated in Germany. Here are Jan, a partner at HV's thoughts on effective pan-European coverage. I think our, our goal in Germany, at least, is to see every relevant deal. And that's something we track ourselves against. And once or twice a year, there's a big exercise and a lot of soul searching and, you know, why did we miss which deal and which angel aren't we connected with and which fund ignores us, etc. That I think on a European level is impossible. There is too much stuff happening to be able to really see every deal. For US newcomers, this difficulty is exacerbated by the fact that the larger your fund size, the less license you have to limit yourself to just one or two European markets. And American funds are usually on the larger side. Europe's a really, uh, diverse ecosystem. And if you're in Silicon Valley, everyone knows everyone. Everyone's one step removed pretty much. And most of the Valley funds until recently did 80 or 90% of their investments in Silicon Valley. Whereas in Europe, yes, there's a significant ecosystem in London. You, you're probably never going to find enough investments for a $500 million fund just in London. And if you look at where the great companies have come from in Europe, they've come from about 30 cities and that's increasing all the time. So how do you track an ecosystem that big? That's Harry Briggs, a partner at Omer's Ventures, the venture wing of Canadian pension fund Omer's, who opened up their European operations in 2019. 
Harry's backed up by the data. As of April 2022, there were 20 European countries with at least one unicorn. While ecosystems like the UK and Germany predictably provided the lion's share of large startups, unicorns can be found all over Europe in places like Iceland and Greece. Adding a final nail in the coffin of investors looking to cover Europe, Harry believes that more and more hubs will continue to emerge in Europe over the next few years, making successful coverage even more difficult. Here he is talking to my co-host Danielle about how he sees the future. The successful companies out of in, in Europe coming out of not just the non-major cities of the UK, but it, it's the, the cities of, as I mentioned earlier, Romania or Hungary or Italy or countries that maybe don't have big tech ecosystems, but do have talent and do have the ability now to tap into the global knowledge base and the global capital base. One of the great assets that Europe has is it is an amazing place to live and we have some of the most beautiful and culturally diverse cities in, in the world. And I think you don't have to be in a tech hub anymore to build a great company. You can, you probably want to be on broadly similar time zone, but there's half a billion Europeans and another billion or so Africans on similar time zones to us. And, and it's an enormous talent pool that we can tap into from any part of Europe. But do you all have any internal theses or even just hypotheses around where you believe kind of uh, future European unicorn activity may come from, whether industry or geographically located? Yeah, look, I wouldn't say that we have a, a shared thesis, but I can give you my, my, my thoughts for what they're worth. So look, I think certain hubs are always going to be important. And I think London, Berlin, Paris, probably Stockholm would be the obvious ones there. But then I think there's certain cities that uh, are, have, have, have an amazing sort of lifestyle and or are making themselves, you know, more and more attractive to founders. I guess the most obvious one being Lisbon, but I think Barcelona is another great example of, I, so when you find cities that, that people who are not from that country are starting to congregate in, that there's something interesting going on. That's been true of London for decades. It's been true of Berlin, certainly for the last two decades. And I think it's been true of Lisbon for the last five or five or so years, probably Barcelona for a lot longer than that. And I think we do have a bit of a thesis on, I guess. A lot of people want to work and live in places with a nice climate that are not completely unaffordable. So I'd be surprised if we don't see more great companies coming out of places like Croatia, out of Athens and other parts of Greece, potentially even out of Morocco, or there's already a number of founders congregating in some of the Mediterranean islands. I think in a remote first world, I think that will become increasingly common just as I think there will be a lot of American companies that are basing themselves out of Baja California or, or parts of Mexico because it's a much cheaper and better climate. And if they can get around the tax and the regulatory and the, the safety aspects, then, then why not? So we've established that Europe is a tough cookie to crack by virtue of its multipolar nature versus a unipolar market where covering one city or country is enough. In Europe, your hunt for unicorns could lead you to having activities in 20 plus markets. However, the difficulties for the American upstarts don't end there. Venture at the early stage is very much about competently assessing founders, but many of our guests suggested that European founders have historically had difficulties conforming to the norms of the American investor class. So there are definitely cultural differences for sure. And especially in Germany compared to, I think I'm very different compared to an American founder. There was an hilarious interaction I once had in the board meeting. That's Christian Reber. 
founder of Pitch, a German startup that has raised from a who's who of international venture funds. Previously, he founded Wunderlist, one of the first companies in Europe to raise from US venture giant Sequoia. So he's seen this cultural challenge up close. So we did, we did a branding workshop in one of our companies and we partnered with a really great agency and they asked me what motivates you. And I've really tried to answer that question in the most meaningful way possible. And I was really reflective and tried to think about what motivates me and realized that I'm really motivated in building amazing teams, amazing teams filled with extraordinary tech talent, marketing talent, design talent, and that I. I don't really care what I'm inventing. I really care more about an amazing group of people, AKA my company. And for me, it was an enlightening moment because I thought, huh, it's not actually the product that motivates me. It's the company that I'm creating. I care apparently more about my team than about my product. And, and I was like super excited about the self-realization. And then I had a board meeting and I, I was like, <laughs> I just said like, I realized I learned more, I, I care more about my company than my actual product. And then the, the VCs I had on my board were like, wait, what are you telling us right now? Are you telling us you're not passionate about your own product? Are you stupid? And I'm like, no, no, that's not how I meant it. You need to understand what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that I really care about people having great jobs, providing stability to my employees and building an environment where, where others, like the people I hire can build amazing product experiences and have a blast and do the best work in their lives. It's not, it's just, I am still passionate about the type of product I'm building, which I think you can see in every single meeting we're having, but it's not what motivates me. <laughs> and I, I was sweating so hard because I realized, oh boy, have I fucked up right now. And I think there is a misconception in amongst VCs that you need to be like overly obsessed with what you're doing. Uh, and anyway, I feel as a German founder, I realized that is what truly motivates me. And I like to build, I'm excited about technology. I'm excited about building products and not everyone understood what I was trying to say. And it yeah, was, was a very, very unique and uh, funny experience. So I think there are definitely huge cultural differences. I've also had a moment once where I said, I think I got married and wanted to go on vacation two weeks or so. And I got asked like, how can you take vacation as a founder? Like, how is that possible? And I was like, what? I mean, what? how would I survive without ever taking vacation? So I think also, which is, I think it's a little bit sad, but I think a lot of where the American culture is very much focused on, you can basically never take a day off. If you're like burned out or exhausted, go home and take a good night's sleep and then come back to work. So there's a huge cultural difference between Europe and the, and the US. I think there was, there's this famous quote as well. Was it Peter Thiel? I think who said, Europe is a great place for people to retire, but not to start companies. I think lately times have changed and like we've all adapted to each other and understand each other better, but yeah, there, there are huge cultural differences for sure. But I think there is, there are still subtle and not like drastic or in any way. Misunderstandings like this can cause both investors and founders to miss out. Christian's examples were with investors who had already chosen to back his companies. However, when things are lost in translation during a fundraising process, that can really hamper good deal assessment. 
How does the VC on the ground in Europe convince their US colleagues that a founder who might present atypically versus an American equivalent is the correct person to build the next unicorn? I continuously hear both from founders and from investors about those European versus US cultural uh, sentiments. And, and, And I think it's one of those things that I discussed with a lot of other founders back in 2015, 16. And I, continue, I, I always get surprised because I, I still hear very much the same thing. And I would say that the typical you know, pattern is US, US investors speaking to European startups, meeting European startup founders, who will then off the record just be like, but they're so plain. I, I think it's this sort of cultural element of US investors being very used to this like, very high energy, pitchy startup environment to a large extent. And then they talk to European founders who, for example, in the first meeting will be very transparent with um, their biggest problems and might like even like proactively be like, oh, so we, we are having issues with the product technology or we hired the wrong person. And I think for, it's just a matter of the translation that I think for a lot of U.S. investors, those are typical. Some of those things might be typical red flags. And you're like, oh, this is a founder who can't sell or this is a founder who can't really fundraise because they're only like talking about their problems. They're not visionary enough, et cetera. And then I speak to European founders, especially who, let's say they, they interact with U.S. founders. They're part of a U.S. accelerator or whatever. And they will come back and they'll be like, oh, but the U.S. startups, they don't actually have anything. They just build storyline. They talk about their vision, but they have no substance. Like we, we have the substance like this is. And I think the European sentiment is sometimes that's somehow a bit unfair. It's a, a lot of companies who will be like, oh, but why are they raising more money? Why are they getting press coverage when we actually have a better product or we have more traction or whatever. So there you have it. From wrangling with potential cultural misunderstandings to gathering the local knowledge required to source, support and assess companies across Europe's multiple markets, the Europe-bound US funds have a laundry list of problems that they need to solve to have a chance of successfully launching operations on this side of the Atlantic. We're going to dive into the tactics they're using to solve some of these issues. But before we switch the solutions, I think it's important to note that a few of our guests disagree that cultural minutiae are all that important. I'm not so sure it matters. I, I think we're, we live in a much more globalized world. That's Hussein, a partner at Hoxton Ventures. His core thesis is that the world has flattened a lot culturally, especially when it comes to business. You know, there was a time I remember my mom grew up in an English boarding school in East Africa. And, and, and she used to come to England and I used to come to England when we were kids as well. And you know, there was a time when you walked down the streets in England and everyone was dressed sort of the same. They were in gray. They were all wearing dress shoes. Like you, you were always like very proper when you went outside. And if you go around London today and you look on the streets, you'll see lots of people at sneakers, trainers in, in the UK is what they call them. And a lot of people wearing at leisure wear. We live in a very, which is no different than what you'd see if you walked around the streets in New York. Or if you walked around the streets in San Francisco, and arguably probably if you walked around the streets in Tokyo, 
Like we live in a much more globalized, homogenized world. I, I don't think these national differences make nearly as much of a difference in, in business context or even in cultural context. So I think so. We have a portfolio company that we funded during the pandemic. It's a Polish entrepreneur with a co-founder is an American entrepreneur. They were living in Spain and in Italy, and then they had a distributed team across Europe. And now they've built up their first, it's a biotech company. They're building their first clinical lab in Switzerland, but on the Italian speaking side of Switzerland. And they just raised a big financing round from two Americans. What would you call this? Is it, it, it very, it's very pan-national, right? American, Polish, Italian, distributed engineering team or kind of science team. It's Switzerland, American investors. Like it's a hodgepodge. It's a complete mix in, in, in my mind. And, and they're very proud to be from where, like where they are. They would never underplay those things. And they're proud to be Polish and proud to be uh, kind of in Italy. It's a global team and they're playing to win. And you know, this company could just be easily bit in Boston as it could be in Switzerland. So they're trying to build the next $10 billion business and they're driven to do this. The Lake of Franca inside the company is English. And that's probably true in most of these businesses. But the few places that probably are the exception are maybe France. But even in France, like when you go to Fritato, Fritato's like official language is English, even though there's a lot of French spoken at the hall. Because if you're going to try and build a big global company and target the U.S. market, you're probably going to have an English, like, the common denominator for everybody is probably going to be English. There are probably going to be more people speaking English than they would Italian or French in, in the hallways. So that the language Franco becomes English. You can keep the cultural, the things that make different cultures unique there, even in a globalized world, you can hang on to your identity. In, in the business world, I think it is largely this very globalized Silicon Valley inspired thing. We all read the same information. We all watch the same TV shows. We all consume the same way. The world is just that much more flat. And in our business, where borders really don't matter. If you're building a manufacturing business and you have to deal with customs unions and tariffs and things like that, and borders do matter. But in our business, we're building software for the most part. And software is very porous and it can cross borders really easily. And that's why Facebook is such a global business, right? Because it goes across borders really fast. Like as long as it's a good product, that's why the app store is like the app engine of the world where the Android play like and is the same, is the same thing on the Android side. It's just, it's a, it's a very global porous world. And so I don't think nationality is really make that much of a difference. Now, again, my little 5% from the market probably agrees with me and that 95% of the market may disagree with me. But I think my 5% is the more likely base that's going to build the $10 billion, $50 billion companies of tomorrow. So solutions can be split into two larger categories, getting geographic breadth and hacking decision-making. The former aims to solve problems around sourcing and supporting companies effectively, in spite of Europe's hydra-like venture ecosystem. The latter is more focused on making assessment work across the Atlantic. We'll start with geographic breadth as funds have been ingenious in how they've gone about creating it. The most simple way of solving this is simply hiring and being present in every relevant market, a sort of decentralized model that was further enabled by the mainstreaming of remote working. Here's James on the topic. Even before the pandemic, Balderton had started to build a distributed investor network. So while we have our home based in London, that's our largest offices, we have people who, who are based in Paris and Berlin and Stockholm and Copenhagen, people who, who are based full-time in those markets, right? That's where they live. It's where their network is, where their family is. 
and that's where they work most of the time. We also had a roving investment committee. So we would normally meet in London, but actually we would force ourselves to go to new geographies and operate like we all worked there normally. I think that new funds entering the market have the ability to say, look, we don't have a geography of choice, but we are going to be in geo rather than entirely remote. So we can build on those networks and say, we're not a London-based VC or a Paris-based VC or even a Europe-based VC. We are online, but we will be in person, you know, Stockholm once a year, Berlin three times a year, London five times a year to try and stay connected to those communities. I think that's a a policy that probably could work. I think if I was to set up the US-based fund today, I think that's what I'd do. I'd say, look, I, obviously you need to spend time in the major hubs. You need to make sure that you have exposure across the market. Another tactic employed is to have a main office in one European market and then try to turbocharge discovery capabilities using data. That's how Harry Briggs set up Omer's Ventures European operations. Typically big funds, they'll end up with someone in London, Paris, Berlin, Stockholm, maybe Madrid or Barcelona or something. And we decided, no, that wasn't going to work for us because we wanted to remain quite a tight team. So we thought, well, we need to do that with data. And so from the very beginning, we brought on someone I knew who had previously been involved um, at, with Citadel, uh, the hedge fund, the big, scary and high frequency trading specialist hedge fund out of New York. And he put together a team to build a, what we call signals product. We're not the first in the world to do this. Clearly companies like signal fire probably pioneered it. And a lot of big funds now do something similar, but it took quite a lot of building, but it now powers a high proportion of our deal flow because it's able to spot an interesting, you know, company in Bucharest or Lithuania that even though we don't necessarily have anyone that's even evident. It's afraid I've never been to Lithuania or Bucharest. I would love to go to both. So that, that was probably the first kind of non-obvious thing that we did. And that, and by the way, that's since been adopted by our colleagues in North America. This wasn't the only tactic that OMA's employed as they launched Europe. They, and a number of other funds have developed methods of forming symbiotic relationships with other ecosystem players who end up as their eyes and ears on the ground. Omers, for example, invest in other earlier stage venture funds. The other thing on a similar vein is we thought, look, the other way of having eyes on the ground would be to make some very selective LP investments in seed stage funds in geographies where we are particularly interested in doing more. We don't talk about this much. I probably shouldn't be bringing it up on a podcast, but we have made a very small number of, of those kinds of LP investments. And they obviously give us stronger relationships with those seed funds, hopefully more knowledge of which of their companies are doing particularly well. Aside from investing in local funds, as discussed at length in our episode on collaboration, American funds are increasingly co-investing with local players and also launching things like scout programs where they incentivize people in the tech ecosystem to find interesting deals for them. While the methods differ slightly in form, the aim is the same, to turn third parties into their eyes and ears across Europe. Aside from solving for geographic coverage, funds have also experimented extensively with their decision-making structures to mitigate the difficulties around transatlantic deal assessment. The most notable example of this is Axel, who, when they arrived in Europe more than a decade ago, opted to have a separate legal entity and fund for Europe, essentially federating decision-making. Our guest Paul took a slightly different approach when setting up Lightspeed in Europe. Lightspeed's approach 
seeks to maintain the best of both worlds. One fund where all partners are aligned and can participate globally, yet where decisions can be made on a local scale. You alluded to federating decision-making. How does it work? I know, for example, Axel has two separate funds, essentially. So they, there's almost like a kind of quasi-Chinese war between the European and US institution, whereas I believe Sequoia is completely rolled into one. So like, how do you actually decide things? So we have a few different sectors at Lightspeed. We've got, and we think of, in a way, we think of geographies as, in some cases, their own sectors. And we have a precedent that, so again, going back to the fact that Lightspeed's been global for a while, we have a way of working in India, we have a way of working in China, Israel has been operating a certain way for many years. But now increasingly, we have a team that's just focused on Web3, a team that's just focused on FinTech, a team that's just focused on healthcare. And so at some point, you have to ask yourself, is it, do we need 50 people in the room to make a decision on a deal that's really early stage? And the answer is obviously no. And so I think if you can develop the trust of your partners and say, look, with, if it fits roughly within these kind of parameters, we fully trust a subgroup to make a decision on behalf of the fund. And so we've been really thoughtful about how we set up those subgroups. And there's different people. Like I, I'm involved in the gaming group that does investment decisions in the U.S. And so my partners in the U.S. are involved in European deals. And if there's something that's a, a health deal, maybe it's, you know, a deal that the Europe team leads and it's a consumer health business, we might tap one or two of our U.S. health partners to be part of the IC. So we try to be dynamic where possible. And we operate under the assumption that getting more people involved and getting more people's input is not going to hurt us. It's only going to get us and you know, make a smarter on the deal and probably help us sell more strongly to the founders. If we are moving fast and ideally we have more people from the States involved in the call, we won't let that kind of slow us down. So we're, we're trying to be pretty flexible. I do think the whole venture capital construct of the Monday, Monday partner meeting, like I think the pandemic is really shaking that up. And I think people realize that decisions need to be made a bit more in real time, not necessarily faster, but just there's no reason to wait for a Monday. A lot of things can happen asynchronously now too. And the other nice thing is because we are investing out of one fund, there's no reason why my partners can't lead deals in Europe. They can hunt deals in Europe. They can lead deals in Europe. And the way that we operate is very much one light speed. So if you have a separate fund, that can become a bit more challenging. And because you have to lead things locally, and if there's a situation where you want to tap someone from outside the region, which fund's going to do it? And you try to abstract that to the founders, but it's not always possible. I was really careful not to let any of that kind of in a surface while we were getting started. There's much more that could be said about how venture decision-making structures are being tweaked to solve potential information asymmetry. For example, some funds have voting structures where partners can back a company on their own, while others have subcommittees empowered to make decisions. The main point, however, is that funds are coming up with ways to solve it, whether it looks like Axel's model or Lightspeed's or something else. Launching in Europe may be the new hot thing to do in global venture, but hopefully this episode has shown that it's a non-trivial undertaking. Europe's diversity, number of countries and hubs, makes it a hard place for even European incumbents to cover effectively. Today, we've touched on how newcomer and incumbent VCs, ever resourceful creatures, have developed a suite of tools that they use to try to wrestle with Europe's complexity. And I personally have been impressed by how creative they've been. I'm sure in the coming years, we will see even more interesting structures and tactics employed, 
and maybe I'll have to update this episode. To any funds out there still looking to cross the Atlantic, I think the takeaway is that it's not something to be done lightly, but it's definitely possible with some thought and creative panache. Just before we leave you today, we have a treat for our female listeners. We are giving you all a 20% discount to WVCE. WVCE is the first pan-European event for women in venture capital. Taking place on the 26th to 27th of September in Paris, the goal is to bring women active in the European VC ecosystem together to effect maximum inclusion and promote positive change. Come and meet hundreds of investors, GPs, LPs, founders, and dreamers. Let's change the industry together. Just use the code WVCEASSOCIATED20 when purchasing your tickets. Thank you all for listening. Please do remember to subscribe to the podcast in whatever podcasting app you use. You can also find us on Twitter at associated underscore pod and email us at associatedpodcast at gmail.com. In two weeks, we have an amazing episode on the impact all of this has had on founders lined up for you.